ask you to take your hymnals, if you will, and turn to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, you'll find it in the back of the hymnal, and it's the first version of the psalm, Psalm 136a. Psalm 136a, and when you found your place, let's stand together and sing. seated and let's bow our heads and our hearts together as we begin today. Let's all pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come together this Sabbath morning grateful that we can sing so many centuries after the first giving of this psalm that your mercies endure forever, that they never fail. They flow from a God who cannot lie. 
Not merely a God who does not lie, but a God who cannot lie. And you have promised those mercies to those we read in your word given unto your son before the foundation of the world. And they will endure forever. And so we pray that as we come together in this place, Lord, in this corner of your vineyard, in this small gathering of your people, that the promise is there. Your promise is even to a gathering of two or three. And Lord, we pray that in this place, I think of my own congregation in North Carolina, our sister churches throughout this continent, Lord, of every faithful assembly of the gospel, that you would be near to your people this Lord's day, that you will give help even in stirring and framing our hearts rightly to praise you, that we would sing with the Spirit and sing with understanding, that we would sing with desire. And Lord, that in the public reading of your word and in our meditations upon your word, that your Spirit might attend this meeting, give help in that preaching, give help in that hearing, and let us go forth rejoicing and helped by your Spirit to live in this world. And so bless us in these moments that we share. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you turn now to hymn number 12 in your hymnal, hymn number 12. We'll remain seated as we sing this one together. Hymn number 12.
Well, if you turn now in the Scriptures, I want to read together from God's Word. If you turn to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, just want to read the opening portion of the chapter. It closes with words I trust are familiar to many, if not all, but Romans 1, let's hear the Lord's Word. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, amen. We'll end our reading there, and we do trust the Lord to add His own blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. It's my privilege to be with you today. If I didn't greet you at the door coming in, uh, my name is Reggie Kimbrough. I pastor the Free Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is a few miles from here. Although we didn't approach from the east, we approached from the west. Uh, My wife, Jan, is privileged to be with me today as well. And we were in Vancouver, or just outside Vancouver, um, on Friday evening for the ordination service for Andrew Fitton, who's being uh, installed or was installed as the new minister there in our congregation. That may be an encouragement to you folks as you are now seeking the Lord's will regarding a new minister and the installation of a new minister here. Uh, please be assured that our prayers are with you uh, in Winston-Salem as you seek the Lord's will and help in that. We'll be praying for the man of the Lord's choosing, uh, not only praying for you folks for wisdom and guidance, but praying for that man, whoever he may be and praying for the Lord's will and help even in the timing. Uh, I know these are difficult times for a congregation, uh, 
Uh, I was, I'm not preaching on it today, so I can elaborate for a moment, but I was thinking, at least, of the passage in Ezekiel 24. Um, the Lord speaks to His people and says that He will be, raise up one shepherd for His people. Ministers are under shepherds. Um, they are ordained of God. They are a help to us in our growth and grace. Uh, but it's the true shepherd and bishop of our souls, and he's never absent. He's, the church is never vacant with regard to his presence. And so be encouraged in that and find comfort in that and just be assured of our prayers for you as well. Um, I remember being in the Free Church in Greenville in my early days, and sometimes the announcements could go on for 20 minutes. Uh, when they built the new building... Um, they stopped letting the senior minister give announcements. They had the associate minister give announcements because the senior minister had a tendency to preach during the announcements and tell long stories during the announcements. I could do that, so I'm going to restrain from that except to say again, it's very good to be with you. I could tease our brother Dirk Struck. He and I both were struggling to remember the first time I was here, but I remember the first time being in Calgary and the first time visiting well, I had seen the Rockies in Colorado, but never here. And uh, he was one of my tour guides going in the old road uh, to Banff, and that was a memorable day. Uh, but it's good to be with you folks again and to renew fellowship. We look forward to being with you this evening as well, and also on Tuesday night for your prayer service. So hopefully we'll have time to reacquaint or become acquainted. Uh, some I see that I'm getting reacquainted with, and some I've just met, so... But it's our joy to be with you today. And at this time, uh, we're going to have uh, the offering. I'll have to double-check how you handle the offering. I saw a box or a basket there that I assume you collect the offering. It's always tough for visiting preachers, the sequence of things. A normal service is one thing, and how to do the offering is part of that. Communions are really tough. I see I'm in the announcements drifting into a story. I was a visiting preacher for communion once in our church in Greenville. And as I had preached already and the elders were gathered around the communion table and had the little trays, and uh, I gave each of them the tray with the bread, and they just stood there. They didn't do anything. And I thought, I thought they were supposed to hand this out. Finally, after an awkward pause, one of the elders, who happened to be a good friend of mine, whispered to me, we usually pray first. Well, he said it inaudibly. I said to him, we usually pray after. And uh, after the congregation and the elders chuckled a little bit, we finally got on with how things should go. So however things should go with the offering, um, we'll let them go that way now. Father, we give you thanks, O Lord, as we come unto thee this morning. We give you thanks, Father, that was read the most famous verse. Father, very beautiful words. It says, Your Lord, the just shall live by faith. Father, we come to thee this morning by the gift of faith that thou hast given to us, O Lord. 
We rejoice, O Lord, the Holy Ghost has convicted us, Father, and Lord, the Holy Ghost has revealed our need and showed us Christ Jesus. Oh, by the gift of faith. We give you thanks, Father, for thy mercy towards us this day in this regard. And as we come before thee, Father, we do ask and pray, Lord, wouldst thou be with the man behind the pulpit, Lord? Lord, wouldst thou make use of him, Father, for thy namesake, for thy honor, for thy glory? Father, have him, O Lord, to be a signpost to Jesus Christ. Lord, take, O Lord, the words he has to say, O Lord. Though they may be of his own choosing, O Lord, what shall be pleased, O Lord, to make use of him, take thy word, Father, breathe upon it, Lord. And Lord, make use of this instrument thou hast brought us today, Father. Lord, what thou fill him of the Holy Ghost, and be with us, O Lord, as thy people, Father. What to have us, O Lord, prepare our hearts to receive thy word, Father, we do ask and pray. Be with us, O Lord, Father, for we need thee and thee have thy help. And Lord, we give thee thanks, O Lord, for regards to the verse that he quoted, O Lord, where two or three shall be gathered together. Lord, thou hast promised to be in our midst, and this, Father, we look to thee. Grant us, O Lord, the gift of faith to believe this thy word, that thou wilt come and meet with us. And Father, for these gifts and tokens, O Lord, in regards to our offerings, O Lord, for the sake of thy work, we do ask and pray, Lord, Father, wouldst thou take them and make use of them, Father, for the extension of thy work. We do ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Number 311.
Well, as I said, it's my joy to be with you here today. I trust the Lord will be pleased to meet with us as well. I want to ask you to turn back to the book of Romans, this time to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to break into the reading in verse 19. So Romans 3 and verse 19. And I'll just give you a heads up. I'm going to pause after reading a couple verses, say a few words, and then continue our reading to the end of the chapter. But from verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And here's where we pause. In the opening verses of chapter 3, Paul has begun to summarize what he has said in what many call the opening argument of his epistle. He says at one point, uh, we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, they're all under sin. And so when we come to read here that the law is marked against men, that men who are under the law are condemned. We read again verse 19. We know what things the law saith that saith to them are under the law. He's previously established it isn't just the Jews that are under God's law. The Gentiles, which he said have not the law. This is where I have to hold it back and not make this a very long pause. The word law is used different ways in Romans. Actually, it's used at least three ways in the paragraph that we're going to read. Sometimes it has reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Other times it has reference to the moral law of God that's written on the hearts of men. Because when we read in the second chapter, Paul says the Gentiles, which have not the law, meaning the written Old Testament, yet they show the work of the law, God's law, written on their hearts. Their conscience speaks to them. There's something they know of truth and of right and of wrong. And so when Paul is bringing all this together to, to show, and of course these very famous verses we read, all the world then is, is guilty before God. So continuing now verse 20. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. I just pause there. It's a word that doesn't get used often. Uh, it's a word that means the removal of wrath. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? 
Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Linda reading. Again, we trust the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. And let me ask you again to bow your heads and hearts with me and let us briefly again seek the Lord's face before we consider the Word. Heavenly Father, we come asking that You will give us each hearts to understand and recognize that we're here to read and consider your word. Not the opinions of a man or a movement or a church, but the living word of the living God. And so we ask that you will be pleased to help us. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The words that begin in verse 19, or excuse me, verse 21 of Romans chapter 3 start the second and greatest portion of this book of Romans. The chapter or the verses, the chapters that precede this, Paul speaks of the revelation of God's wrath. He shows he's established, as we have seen, and Paul's to consider that all the world is guilty before God. It doesn't matter if it was the Jews who from the days of Moses until Paul's day had possessed the Old Testament Scriptures or the whole of mankind prior to the days of Moses that God had spoken to. As Hebrews says, God spoke in sundry times and in different ways unto the fathers by the prophets. Or the Gentiles who were cut off and had drifted into the depths of their apostasy during the days of Moses and the nation of Israel. It doesn't matter. All are recipients of God's law. All are transgressors of God's law. All are accountable to God's law. And all, or could we say it the other way, none have any ability to save themselves by God's law. And so verse 21 opens the new section of the book. But now into this hopeless situation with regard to man's sin, his condemnation, his guilt, and his inability to do anything to save himself. Into that situation, God has entered. And we read here what many commentators say is the most important paragraph that has ever been written. What Paul said in a sentence, as it were, in the verses that we read in chapter 1, that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What he said really in an extended sentence there, he says in a paragraph here, And then he fleshes out that paragraph to explanations through the rest of the book of Romans. 
But I say many have put before us that this is the most important paragraph that's ever been written. Because in it he speaks plainly of what the gospel is. He speaks of the source of the gospel. It's God's grace. He speaks of the means, or the ground rather, of the gospel. It's Christ's work. Our faith is not in itself a work. And that's something we have to keep clear in our thinking. Some Christians at times get caught in the trap and in the vicious circle, as it were, of having the object of their faith, the thing they believe in, being their own faith. No, faith is just the vehicle through which we embrace Christ. It's Christ that saves. It's His person and His work. Faith is merely the means by which we embrace and receive what Christ has done. And so Paul, here I say in this paragraph, outlines or fleshes out that thesis sentence from chapter 1 and then gives the outline, as it were, for where he'll go with the rest of this book of Romans. I'm preaching through Romans in my own congregation right now, and so I'm halting here and there trying to stay preaching just the one sermon and not all of those that have been preached so far. But this morning, I don't want to focus so much on that paragraph from verse 21 to verse 26. We've just paused to consider a little bit of it. I want to focus a little bit more on what follows. But I want you to think with me for a moment to set a little background before we come into those verses. I've been taken back and I've in recent years been given the task of teaching the book of Acts in our seminary in Greenville. I've done a little module on the book of Acts, I think two maybe three times now over the last 10 or 12 years. And the first time I taught through it, I was greatly taken back. Uh, Acts is a, a history book in the New Testament. It's not one of the epistles where we find the doctrine, as it were, although there's a wealth of doctrine in Acts. But I found it so profitable, a blessing in so many ways and a help perhaps even through difficult times and discouragements, a help to go through the book of Acts and to try and read a little bit between the lines to think about what was happening in between the chapters and the verses and things such as this. Paul, when he, in his third missionary journey, spent those two and a half, close to three years in Ephesus, we remember he began to lecture in the school of Tyrannus. Commentators have a, a nice little time talking about the school of Tyrannus. Now in Ephesus, uh, the school would have been occupied by Tyrannus and his pupils, we suppose, in the mornings, but there would have been a time in the afternoons where things would shut down. I don't know what uh, word it would have been used in those days, but a siesta, uh, an afternoon rest, and the school was vacant and Paul was able to have access to it and for over two years, he was lecturing, teaching in this school of Tyrannus. Well, when Paul left Ephesus, it's during that season shortly thereafter that he wrote the book of Romans. 
Now, we believe in the doctrine of the inspiration of Scriptures, that the Spirit of God gave the Apostle what was to be in this book. But God's a God of means, and we cannot but understand that a lot of what we're reading in Romans is what Paul was teaching in those afternoon hours in Ephesus. It's almost the outworking of his, of his class notes. And this book of Romans is really the theology book of the New Testament. It's where more succinctly and logically than in any other place in the Bible, Paul just systematically goes forth and unfolds the story of the gospel. And as I said, we see in this paragraph from verse 21 to verse 26, the most important paragraph that's ever been written. The the outline of everything that will follow in these chapters in the book of Romans. But what I want to do today is I want to focus from verse 27 to the end of the chapter. We could, as I say, park and perhaps should in that paragraph itself beginning in verse 21 and speak of the source of the gospel and the ground of the gospel and the means of the gospel. But rather I want to look from verse 27 to the end because here we find what I believe are reflections on the gospel. Some commentators actually make the comment that when we come to these verses they're almost anticlimactic. Paul has been giving the glorious good news He's been giving the bullet points of the truths and the facts of what the gospel is. The need of sinners, their inability to save themselves. The grace of God in reaching down and saving them. Sovereignly, graciously, powerfully saving them. And the way he can do that, the only way he can do that, is through the work of our substitute, the Lord Jesus But when he comes to verse 27, what some see, and perhaps it's accurate to say, is kind of an anticlimax after all those gospel statements. What impact does that gospel have on those who believe it? What are our reflections on the gospel as Christians? And it's to those that I want to look today. In verse 27, if you read with me, and I submit to you here the first of three reflections here. Pride, if we understand the gospel, if we see and understand and believe that gospel that Paul has just outlined, pride is excluded How does he say it again? Where is boasting then? All these truths of the gospel, where does that leave us? Where's boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? There's another way that word law is used. It's used here like a principle. By what principle? By what means is boasting excluded? Of law? Or of works rather? No, if the gospel's a gospel of works, boasting's not going to be excluded. If we're saved by working and saving ourselves, 
then we've got something to boast about. But that's not the gospel. Because we could never save ourselves. And when we imagine that we do, or we even contribute to it, we have a false gospel. Understanding this gospel, understanding God's gospel, boasting is excluded. Now we can only imagine the personal experience of this man writing these words, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, that one of the twelve apostles who was given in particular the task of going to the different nations and preaching the good news of salvation by Jesus Christ. Think of the transition in his life. He was, as he described himself elsewhere, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, you can go back to the Gospels, they weren't interested in the nations. They weren't interested in interacting with other people. They certainly weren't interested in having other people say they could be the people of God like they were. You go to Mark 7, when they went to the markets, they came home They washed the pots, the pans, the food, everything. They didn't want to touch anything a Gentile had touched. Those were the Pharisees. But Paul said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. For this man, this man to come and join hands with the Gentiles. For this man to come to understand the grace of God. And be so humbled by that grace. Overwhelmed by his own unworthiness. It opened his heart to see, yes, the unworthiness of the Gentiles. He would have admitted that as a Pharisee. But the fact that the Gentiles can be accepted. That they can by grace be saved through Jesus Christ. And have the same standing, the same position before God as he could. Yes. Absolutely. And that was the joy of his heart. And perhaps one reason that the unbelieving Jews persecuted him. Ran him out of synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. Because they wanted a gospel that included boasting. They wanted a gospel that could make them feel good about themselves. And that kind of starts to resonate with false teaching everywhere, doesn't it? Feel good about yourself. Look within. Find the answers. I mean, that's everywhere. That's where all the Star Wars movies tells us the answer is. Look within. That's where false expressions even of Christianity tell us to look. Look within. Do your part. A false gospel is going to lead to boasting. A false gospel is going to lead to taking some confidence in self. But the true gospel 
God's gospel excludes boasting. My own testimony, I was raised in circles that were not reformed. Um, It was strongly dispensational. And I think anti-reformed would approach but not really be an overstatement. Didn't like Calvinism. When I came to understand the doctrines of grace, which is a better title for Calvinism, to be sure. It's interesting to me to see that there were many that had my similar experience that had come into the doctrines of grace having been raised in a Christian environment where they weren't understood or embraced. And there's a lot of emotion that you go through. My wife and I and friends of ours and many others speak at times of what should be called the cage stage. Somebody comes to understand the doctrines of grace and there's a lot of emotions that come in there. Well, People didn't tell me this. People spoke against this and they, they kind of gave me a caricature of this and they become champions then of the doctrines of grace and I'm all for being a champion of the doctrines of grace but the problem is that's why we call it the cage stage. You need to just be put in a cage for about a year till you cool down a little bit and deepen your own understanding of these new truths Because nothing in the doctrines of grace should lead to pride, theological pride. You know, when we get that, and then we finally are diagnosed and we understand we have that, the devil and the flesh come along and say, you have theological pride. Get rid of the theology. Oh, wait. Maybe the best answer should be get rid of the pride. Come to terms with grace a little more fully yourself. Because this gospel, here, right on the heels of the most important paragraph ever written, the first reflection, the first impact of this gospel on the soul is to exclude boasting. Where's boasting then? excluded by what law of works no by the law of faith if we have nothing to bring if Christ has done everything if Christ has taken both the penalty of the broken law God's wrath against my sins and made it his own and suffered that upon the cross if Christ has looked at God's law and fulfilled that righteous standard that I could never keep, and counted that just as my sins were counted as His, His righteousness is counted as mine. Well, the Bible does say in another place something about boasting in the gospel. It's the other side of this coin. I can't boast in the gospel in myself. Because I can do nothing. Christ has done everything. Paul says in Galatians, God forbid that I should boast. God forbid that I should glory. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a gospel boasting. That's boasting in what Christ has done. Because there's never any boasting 
and what I have done. The first reflection upon the gospel is pride is excluded. Secondly, I would suggest to you that in reflecting on the gospel, distinctions are eliminated. Paul continues in verse 28 and says, Therefore we conclude a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it's one God which would justify the circumcision, that is the Jews, through faith, and the uncircumcision through faith. Now remarkably, Paul has repeatedly brought this truth to us in the book of Romans all along. In the thesis statement, he speaks of it being to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In verse 23, when he was speaking about man's condition as a sinner, he said, there's no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And just as there's no difference in the accountability, in the depravity, in the sinfulness of Jew and Gentile alike, there's no difference in the justification of Jew and Gentile alike. God will justify the Jews through faith. They can't save themselves. They have no merit of their own. God will justify the Gentiles through faith. They can't save themselves. They have no merit of their own. And it's interesting, several have commented here, that Paul almost is drifting into irony. Because the Jews, among the other nations, you recall, were given to monotheism. One God. The Gentiles had many gods. When Paul went to Athens, he saw all the different idols, the different monuments, and his spirit was stirred when he saw the whole city given to idolatry. And he even saw among their devotions, he said there, an altar to the unknown God, you know, in case we left one out. Well, Paul said, I'm going to preach this one to you. And of course, he preached Jesus. He preached the gospel. He preached the one God. But I say it's ironic here because the Jews prided themselves on their monotheism and derided the Gentiles for their ungodly belief in many different gods. Well, the Jews were the ones that were opposing Paul's preaching of the gospel. You see it all through Romans. You see it all through Acts. And I say the irony here is, is he says, all right, you're the believers in one God. Well, if he's the God of the Jews, he's the God of the Gentiles. Because there isn't any other God. If he's the creator of all mankind, and Jesus has come as the redeemer of all mankind, then, well, you can't boast as a Jew. You can't boast as a self-righteous Gentile. And you then come to understand that distinctions are eliminated. The Jews had tried and build up the distinctions because it was upon those distinctions they were building their pride. We're different than them. We're better than them. 
Well, we today, perhaps, I don't know if we have any Jews here today or not, but say primarily Gentiles that are gathered here and believers, professing believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can come to some of those same thoughts. Maybe you were born into a godly home. You've been under the scriptures, God's law from the cradle. You have a background, you have a knowledge and an education and life experience, a profession of faith in Jesus Christ that is very different than the rank and file of the ungodly in this most ungodly age and world. But do you have any rights? Do you have anything to bring that makes you more worthy than the most ungodly of these Gentiles? No, if we pause and reflect on this powerful gospel, it excludes pride and it eliminates distinctions. Do you ever meditate on one of Jesus' parables, the workers in the vineyard? Jesus tells the story of a man who owns a vineyard. It's, it's harvest time. He goes into the village to seek workers, day laborers, and he hires some, and they come, and they begin to work in the vineyard. They agree for a certain amount of money for the day's work. They happily take up that agreement, and they go to work, and Later in the day, he goes again and he brings in more workers and he agrees with them for the same and sends them into the vineyard. And then he goes late in the day, the 11th hour, and he tells those people, there are other men, you, you haven't been anywhere working today, come work in my vineyard. And they come and they only work the last hour of the day. And he said, to the end, I'll give you what's right. And at the end of the day, he tells the servants to go when he gives all of the workers the same amount of money. And the men that had worked all day and borne the heat of the day, they're enraged. We've been here all day, and this is all you're giving us. And yet these men have only been here an hour, and you're giving them the same. The man says, didn't I agree with you this morning for this amount of money for the day's work? And you happily agreed and took it. Why are you mad at me for being kind? Well, in the Lord's illustration, we flesh that out and look at the gospel. Do you ever have the mindset of someone else? Maybe they've lived a, a life that wasn't quite as clean as yours. Maybe you were saved as a child, as we said, in a, in a godly home and in a Bible-preaching church. And there are a lot of sins of the world that you've never committed. And here's one that's, well, like the prodigal son. And even late in his life, maybe on his deathbed, or maybe a thief and a murderer on a cross, That Jesus chooses to save. 
Does that cause you to rejoice? Or does it bring conflict into your soul? If you're really understanding, embracing, and rejoicing in the gospel, you're going to say to the owner of the vineyard, what a, what a wonderful thing that you have brought in these the same as me. Distinctions are eliminated when we understand grace. But lastly, as we read through this anticlimactic paragraph following that most important paragraph ever written, we read here, do we then make void the law through faith? This revelation of God, does the gospel then make that void? Paul says, God forbid. That strong negation that we find frequently in the New Testament, God forbid, may it never be. Perish the thought. No, we establish the law. Think with me about that. The law and what we would take it up to do, as it were, to try and justify ourselves. If we really understand the law, Christ came in the most famous of His sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, to the Pharisees and the Jews that knew a lot about the Bible. They knew a lot about the law. And He said, except, you think of the impact of that to the hearers of the message, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're going to perish. Well, these are the most godly, holy, righteous men on the planet. I mean, they've scrutinized the Old Testament. They have a list of laws and things they do and don't do that is massive. You know, we often think about legalists as people that magnify the law. I mean, we just said, didn't the Pharisees draw hundreds of rules you read the Jewish writings, the Talmud, following their season in captivity, and they wanted to be very careful and not be like those Gentiles, and they fleshed out the list of do's and don'ts and the boxes that had to be checked. Legalists, we often think, make the law bigger than it really is. And that's actually not true. Legalists, Reduce the law. They make the law smaller than it really is. They have to bring it down to a keepable standard that they can check the box and say, I didn't do that. I did do that. But God's law reaches to the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Jesus preached to them, you've heard it said, a man should not commit adultery. That's a law. It's a box I can either check or not check. But he says, 
If a man looks on a woman to lust after, he's committed adultery already in his heart. That's what God's law really is. You think a man shouldn't kill. Very good, right. But I say to you, when you're angry at your brother without a cause, you're already a murderer. In God's sight, you have broken that commandment. That's what God's law really is, and that's why we can't save ourselves by keeping it. We're all transgressors of it. But here's the gospel. Here's how the gospel of grace establishes the law instead of setting it aside. What did God do when he sent Jesus? Paul's going to come in Romans chapter 5 to explain the similarity between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, whom he calls the last Adam or the second man. All of us were in Adam when he sinned and fell. Our head, our representative, failed and brought condemnation upon us all. In the eternal purposes of God, he sent a second Adam to represent a new people. And part of the work of Christ was fulfilling the law of God on our behalf. And this is a part of the gospel I think it's easy for Christians, even Bible-believing Christians, to get weak on. The other, can we speak in this way, the other half of the gospel is our sins, our transgressions of God's law were laid on Jesus. God punished our sins when Jesus was crucified. You know, Christ's death on the cross, we think about the, the spittle of the Jews, their mockery. We think about the scourging and the crucifixion of the Romans, the agonies of that death, the humiliation of that death, that worst of all deaths designed to be humiliating, designed to be long. Those were just the attending circumstances. The big part of what Jesus suffered was the wrath of God against our sins. I'm holding back from going off into a deeper and fuller explanation of that. But I say that is just part of the gospel. It's not the right term, but it's been using over centuries and so it's, it's written in but that's what we call the passive obedience of Christ he wasn't passive he was purposeful and active in offering that atonement for our sins but in his passion in his suffering he paid the penalty of our transgressions of God's law but I say the other half of the gospel that we so often Miss And I know in my good, godly, Bible-believing upbringing was just not emphasized and fully understood. The other half of the gospel 
is not merely Christ bearing our penalties of a broken law, but Christ meriting the reward of a fulfilled law. That second man obeyed in thought as well as action. He not only didn't murder, he was not angry without cause against his brother. He did not only not commit adultery, he did not lust after a woman. And on and on through it all, he fully obeyed the law. And that righteousness, think of this Christian. God didn't lower his standard to let you in. He magnified his law and made it honorable in the gospel. He's just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. It's Jesus' fulfilling of the law in our nature as the second man that is counted as mine. And that's how Paul can say here in this last reflection on the gospel. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. This is the only way we establish the law. This is the only way we can see God honoring His own law and still saving the likes of me. He's just. And the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. So when we reflect on that most important paragraph ever written, which we have so hastily reviewed together, but we come to these places where that truth impacts the soul. What are our reflections on this gospel? Boasting is excluded. Distinctions are eliminated. And the law of God is established and honored. Friends, that's what Paul has in mind and would have us understand when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I trust if you are here today and you know this Savior, that you have these reflections deepened in your own soul. And if you're here today and outside of this Jesus, that the glories of this gospel might overwhelm you to come and by faith embrace Him, His work, your soul. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come today and ask that you might take up of the words we've read, the meditations upon these words that we've shared, and speak that word in season to each of us in our point of need. And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. If you take your hymnal with me, we're going to sing a closing hymn together, number 340. 340. I hear thy welcome voice. And let's stand together as we sing.
Let's bow again in prayer. Lord, take the words that we've heard today. Minister again to each in our point of need. Make us mindful of the Savior. Lord, may in each of us boasting be excluded, all distinctions eliminated. And what a wonder at how you have established and answered the demands of your own law. We pray these things in Jesus' worthy and precious name. Amen. Thank you.